it's easy to point a finger at people that have addiction problems and think it's them because it's street drugs or alcohol or prescription pharmaceuticals. And you go, well, that can't be me. But what if I told you that everybody, everybody has the possibility to be addicted to something and it doesn't have to be street drugs. It can be potato chips. It can be ice cream. It can be the scroll on your phone. It can be sex, pornography, you name it. Simple behaviors. If it's getting in your way of functioning, then it's potentially addictive. Come listen to me while I talk to Dr. Anna Lemke, Medical Director of Addiction Medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine, and find out why you or your loved ones may actually have the potential to be addicted. I'm Sarah Heiner, and this is the Bottom Line Advocator Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review us at the end so that more people can learn about this podcast and share it. Tell your friends. Let's get the whole world healthy. Hi, Facebook. Happy Thursday afternoon. It's always that awkward moment when I push go and bounce between one one platform and another. So welcome. I'm glad that you joined me today. I'm Sarah Heiner with our Bottom Line Health and Happiness show. Um, Reminders, as always, that we have a growing um, library of videos, people that we've been talking to. The library is in the Facebook videos here on the bottom. We are bottom line page. We also then take them and, and make, clean them up a little bit, make them pretty, put them into YouTube. We have a YouTube channel with hundreds of videos actually, and all sorts of stuff that I've been doing over the years. So you can always go there and subscribe and find not just this latest video that we're talking about, but whatever. There's a whole sorts of other things that you might want to check back on something that you might've seen weeks ago, or better yet, If you want to share it, tell a friend. If you say, wow, I saw this great video, you should watch it too. Again, they can come back to Facebook or you can go over to YouTube and see that over there. Um, Let me remind you also all the things I have to remember to tell you. The best thing you can do for this pandemic as the numbers keep, are they up? Are they down? This more virulent strain of COVID, um, which I will remind you, it might be more transmissible. It's not more deadly because viruses need to survive. If they kill their hosts, they can't survive anymore. So they evolve, interestingly. It doesn't mean they're not deadly and that we're not having a high death rate, but viruses, trans, they change. It's what they do. Um, the best thing you can do for yourself is strengthen your immune system in all sorts of ways. There are many things that can be done. The doctor, you know, we're talking about masks and hand washing and social distancing, but there are many other things you can do. Your doctor may not be telling you. So there's a link in the chat um, to download that right now. You can do that. Um, we also have another link in the chat for another free download, all from the editors of Bottom Line about pain, aches and pains. I was just joking with our guest about my 60-year-old achy body. Um, and there are all sorts of things that you can do to, move, to reduce your pain. So we have another free download because I don't know about you, but sitting in my office all day and at home where my, my um, you know, chair might not fit my desk quite as well as it does at the office, it gets a little achy and sitting at the desk all day gets a little achy. So there are things that we can do to help ourselves. Um, So download that as well. Um, If you have any questions, we're gonna have a great conversation with Dr. Anna Lemke in just one minute. And that's gonna be about addiction. The, The pandemic has actually kicked the butts of a lot of people. People that had substance abuse problems have had some greater problem with it. Some people that never had abuse problems are suddenly finding themselves with addiction problems to all sorts of things. So in fact, according to Dr. Lemke, we all have the potential for being being addicted to something. Um, and that was pretty mind blowing. Um, so if you have questions about that, don't be shy, put them in the chat box. My friend Lauren, as usual, is gonna be sending me texts 
to tell me who's asking what questions. So put them in there and I'll pass them along. Um, I think that's what I got to say. Next week, same bad time, same bad channel. Next Thursday, four o'clock, we're going to be back here. We're going to be talking about the culture code. Um, so, um, and the American culture and the pandemic and closures and lack of control and what that's doing to us. So it should be a really interesting conversation. Next week, today, let me bring on Dr. Anna Lebke. Um, I have to switch my little button and I will introduce her to you. Hi, Anna, thank you. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, okay, let me let me read everybody how great you are. Um, I first saw you in in um, Social Dilemma, which I thought was one of the most powerful movies going. Really important if anyone hasn't seen it. But this is Dr. Anna Lemke. She's the Associate Professor and Medical Director of Addiction Medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine. Um, she was one of the first in the medical community to sound the alarm regarding the opioid overprescribing over and the opioid epidemic. Needless to say, we all know where that has gone and the, the extreme challenges of that. Um, um, Anna is the author of Drug Dealer MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Parents Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop. Very important book that's out there. She has a new book that's coming up in August. You can pre-order it on Amazon, and that's called Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. Again, super important. We are in this age of immediate gratification, indulgence, chasing after that ding, as Simon Sinek calls it. Um, so important book coming back out. Um, and then there's another movie besides that you may have seen her in Social Dilemma and go see that, as I said, very important about the addiction to social media. Um, she, there's a newly released film called Medicating Normal, um, which looks great um, that you have to, it's kind of streaming in certain areas. Um, so coming up, so take a check that as well. Okay, now that I've told everybody how great you are, let's uh, talk about addiction and the tendency toward it. Um, high level high level, what has been the impact, just super high level of COVID, the lockdowns, the fear, all of that on people with addiction and then people without addiction? Because you said that's actually gone in multiple directions. Yeah, I really like the way you divide it into people who already have an addictive disorder and those who do not, because I think that's a really nice way to think about it. In people who already have a substance use disorder, substance being the medical term for any intoxicant, um, I've really seen uh, two basic groups. Those for whom the pandemic has surprisingly been a boon, they are actually doing better as a result of sheltering in place. And a lot of that has to do with decreased stressors related to maybe their commute, um, less likely to be invited to parties where they could get triggered, less likely to go out shopping. Shopping is actually a big trigger for all kinds of addictions, just being in the grocery store and going, you know, by the liquor section. Mm. So I've got folks with addiction who are able to get into recovery for the first time since the pandemic, um, and also folks who just have found that recovery is easier. And recovery is the broad term we use for people who are no longer engaging with their addictive drug. The other big- I would pause for a second because I think that's a really important part. And we'll talk later on about what makes people vulnerable to addiction and the stressors. So that because then that it's funny that a lot of those went away um, in them. I know people that whose kids had terrible anxiety who are actually doing much better. Even though a lot of kids have developed anxiety, yeah. there are some that similarly are doing better at home. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's it's important to acknowledge these silver linings. But of course, having said that, right. I do have patients with addiction who have found this to be an incredibly challenging time. The financial stressors, the isolation, uh, the uncertainty, the disruption to our everyday lives have led those individuals who had been in recovery from their addiction, had led them to relapse or it just has just made life really stressful and difficult for them. Well, and I think suicides are up. Yeah, over, overdose deaths are up and they're in 2020 on pace to be, to be over than last year. Is that correct? Well, that's a little complicated. So, and I'm really glad you asked that because what you will read in the media is that overdose, drug overdose deaths have increased, mm-hmm. but the, the span of time that they're looking at is between May 2019 and May 2020. So in that 12 month period, which is really only a couple months into the pandemic, mm-hmm. we have had more drug overdose deaths, 81,000 drug overdose deaths in the United States between May 2019 and May 2020, right. the highest ever recorded number of drug overdose deaths in a 12 month period. Right. But it really remains to be seen whether 2020 will turn out to be a year that has more drug overdose deaths than that last increment in May. Yeah. Right. So, and I think it's really important to highlight because it is, I think, something that does happen in the media where it's much more sensational and also right. kind of, kind of, a, it's a good story, right? Like, oh, COVID, um, all these stressors, more people are dying of drug overdose deaths. It might be true, but it might not be true. And we just don't know yet. How about other things? Everybody talks about the COVID-19, <laughs> kind of like the freshman 15, right? So added weight or alcohol. I know in Connecticut, I don't know about other states, Connecticut, they were very careful not to close liquor stores. Um, even you know, that was essential. When everything else was locked down, grocery stores and liquor stores we had to stay open. Um, so how about other types of addictions? Um, what, what, do you have any feedback on the behavior in those places? Yeah. So, I mean, I think you did a nice job initially kind of distinguishing between people who already have addiction and then folks who don't have addiction, but maybe as a result of the disruption of COVID um, have actually started to engage in risky or addictive substance use. And certainly we are seeing people in the United States drinking more alcohol since sheltering in place uh, than than we were prior to sheltering in place. And reasons for that probably have to do with the fact that people are bored. Um, They've watched sort of every Netflix documentary (laughs) or docudrama or show, and they've run out of things to do. Um, The other reason is that many people no longer have to go to work or they don't have jobs. So one of the things that really does keep us from overindulging, especially things like alcohol, is that we have to get up the next morning. Mm. And many of us are finding that we don't have to get up the next morning. So we're staying up later, sleeping in longer, and alcohol for some people can really, um, really get, get, you know, tied up with that. And then of course, we're all spending a whole lot more time online and, and, and being online is really a portal to all kinds of drugs, not just traditional drugs like alcohol and cannabis and uh, LSD or whatever, but um, new drugs that, you know, didn't even exist before, drugs like video games, drugs like social media. And I really do conceptualize those as drugs because they have a very potent effect on our brain's reward pathway. Yeah, I wanna talk in a minute about all those other the things that, again, it's easy to think about 
there are her people that are addicted to heroin. That's not me. Or my uncle was an alcoholic. That's not me. But all these other subtle things that I want people, you know, that I think it's important to people to be aware of. And importantly, kind of the motivation of what's going on so that there's the we're bored part of it, right? Mm -hmm. So that it's like, okay, I got nothing else to do. Let me go, go mm -hmm. drink more um, or do drugs or eat. Um, but how about all the deeper things that are going on because of the pandemic, mm -hmm. increased fear, mm -hmm. um, loss of control? Mm -hmm. um, what impact do those things have? You know, I know that people that have um, eating disorders, they always talk about that it's a control thing as much of anything, or if they're cutting, it's a control thing in some ways as much as anything. So where people have lost control, um, you know, there's a lot of fear going on. Um, what are those bigger, broader issues doing to people that are vulnerable? So one of the main things that we teach folks who are trying to get into recovery from addiction is that they need to structure their day. Lack of structure contributes to stress, contributes to vulnerability to addiction. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right. One of the main ingredients of our COVID experience has been that we've lost our structure, right? We're not eating at the same time we used to eat. We're not spending time at work or at school the way we used to before. People joke that it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, blurs day, that you just don't, don't know what day it is anymore. And so these typical kinds of um, benchmarks or signals that we use to kind of orient ourselves on our lives and keep us on track have really disappeared. And with that definitely has come increased anxiety for some people spiraling to depression, just a sense of sort of not feeling real in the world and, and all of those things, any kind of psychiatric problem can certainly in, increase the risk of using a substance. And anytime we use a substance, we're at increased risk right. of becoming addicted. Well, and then you have the people. So I'm going to call it, this might come out sounding running. I'll call my life has been inconvenienced. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my business is challenged as all businesses are challenged, you know, lower you know, job losses so that lower economy, people spending less. But I'll call it my life has been inconvenienced. My kids are grown, et cetera. But there are people who's obviously they've lost their jobs or categories where they've lost their jobs or their industries like business owners that can't, the restaurant industry, the entertainment industry, the hairdressers in California that you know they've got no control over their lives mm -hmm. um, where it's, it's far more than inconvenience on board. I don't have structure. I don't have to get up at six in the morning. I can sleep till eight o'clock um, versus that group. Do you have to deal with, like, do people need to look at the subgroups and look at, you know, evaluate themselves differently or is it all the same thing in terms of the way we need to process and get ourselves into structure and control and perceive ourselves, but you know, as I call it, having finding control somewhere versus straight victim, which puts it, you know, always puts you into a dangerous place. Right. So, I mean, it's it's an interesting question. You know, this question of when our life is highly disrupted, when we lose our jobs, lose our business. You know, how does that relate to our risk of addiction? And what I find really fascinating about uh, the disease of addiction is that I have some patients with the disease of addiction who will do much better 
in times of extreme challenge and stress actually do much worse when things are going well. So again, it's, it's very individualized. Yeah. It's really depends on the person, you know, in some ways people with a vulnerability to addiction are people who I speculate are kind of hardwired for challenge. Like they need a certain amount of friction and on some level, the, the boredom of our existence and when things are going wonderfully is really when they're doing worse. That's not to say that people who are losing their businesses, um, you know, are having a great time or right. something, you know, are healthier, but it's just to say it's, it's, it's a complicated disease. And what, what we might assume would be a trigger for one person might actually be helpful for them in terms of their, their disease of addiction, whereas another could respond in a different yeah. way. It's interesting. I remember being shocked to hear about, I'll call it superstar students at Ivy League schools who were addicted. The logic being, or what I, what the logic that was handed out was because they were bored because mm-hmm. they just, nothing was a challenge. They were superstar students. They felt a little bit master of the universe and immortal and sure I can do this too. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. I, think, I think that can happen for sure. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about what the people are aware of, like all the things we can be addicted to. Cause you know, again, you said, you told me that about 10% of the population is, has an addiction to um, drugs, to uh, what, what, the, what we kind of can, does that include, that doesn't include alcohol, right? That's drugs, opioids. That, that includes, that includes alcohol. So about 10 to, as well. So yeah. So the, the lifetime prevalence Mm-hmm. of any addiction, any substance use disorder is about 10 to 15%, meaning that 10 to 15% of the U.S. population will experience a substance use disorder some point in at some point in their lifetime. But for, maybe I should step back and define what addiction is, because I realized that we I didn't do that, and I wonder if that would be helpful. Okay. So yeah, I mean, I think so, actually, because now when we're going to talk about, you know, potato, potato chip addiction or a sex addiction, addiction I think understanding that basic underlying definition would be great. Yeah. So broadly defined, addiction is the continued compulsive use of a substance or a behavior despite harm to self and or others. Sometimes we use the shorthand for the three C's, out of control use, compulsive use, and continued use despite consequences. So, So that's how we think of it. It's not based on how often you use a drug or um, how much of the drug you use. It really has to do with whether or not you have control over your drug use and whether or not you continue to use even once that drug has affected your personal relationships, your professional relationships, your mental and physical health, or really any important aspect of your life. So when I talk about the natural history of the disease of addiction, Um, What's so interesting to me is that whether the drug is cocaine or cannabis or pornography, the natural history looks pretty much the same. People usually start out using a drug because it's reinforcing. They tried it once and it did something positive for them. They use it a second time, usually either to have fun or to solve a problem. And the problem can be really wide ranging. It can be, I'm bored, or it can be, I have trouble falling asleep, or it can be, I have trouble paying attention in class. But there's gotta be some reinforcing aspect to the experience of that drug 
for that individual, kind of like a key fitting into a lock, which gets to the issue of drug of choice, right? So what is reinforcing for me may not be reinforcing for you and vice versa. And this is really relevant to the modern day and to what I talk about in my book, Dopamine Nation. We are living in an unprecedented, unprecedented time of increased access to a whole new variety of highly addictive drugs and behaviors, such that whereas previously, let's say alcohol doesn't do much for me, so I, it wouldn't really potentially be a problem, but now there are all these other drugs I could potentially try, such that eventually I'll find my key to fit in my lock. And that's what I mean when I say we're, we're, we're all vulnerable. There are so many drugs now not just in the form of substances that we ingest, but also all these online behaviors from, you know, from Twittering to YouTubing, to video games, to pornography, to online shopping. And there's no end to it, right? We have these bottomless bowls. There's no natural end. Usually, you know, if you have like a pile of cocaine, it's expensive. And, and when you run out, you kind of, you run out. Right. But it's not true online, right? It's like infinite access. And it's also really, really potent. So do people, I understand people saying they have a biochemical um, addiction to cocaine. Let's talk for a second about that dopamine um, because it's like, do I really have a biochemical addiction to Instagram, right? Or to the scroll or to, you know, so um, talk about that, that dopamine hit and what, where that comes in, the role of our hormones that's like this, you know, kind of chasing, you know, ding, as Simon Sinek, you know, I saw him an interview with him about, you know, this constant chase for that reinforcement of something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so dopamine is a neurotransmitter and it is our pleasure neurotransmitter. And neurotransmitters are just chemicals in the brain that allow our neurons to talk to each other to send signals. So whenever we do something that's positive or pleasing, we get a little bit of dopamine in our brain's reward pathway. And if we do it more, initially we get more dopamine. And what really distinguishes drugs or behaviors that are addictive from those that are not is how much dopamine they release in the reward pathway when we do them. Drugs that are addictive universally release a whole lot more dopamine than, than th behaviors or substances that are not addictive. So for example, I've never had a patient addicted to broccoli because broccoli <laughs> just doesn't release that much dopamine, right? What's like, how come, like you get addicted to potato chips, you don't get to, addicted to broccoli. Like that's so Yeah, funny. right. I, I love that you brought up potato right. chips. Potato chips are, you know, they're manufactured to be incredibly palatable. They've got salt, they've got fat. In some instances, they've got sugar added and they're, they're a potent drug. That's no longer eating a potato, right? You're eating something that has been manufactured to be really reinforcing so that you can't have just one, right? You have one and you want another one. So, so what's happening in the brain? What, you know, what is driving that? To, in order to understand what drives addiction, it's essential to understand that when the brain gets a big hit of dopamine, it immediately recalibrates to downregulate its own dopamine and its own dopamine receptors. So we make our own dopamine, right? And we have dopamine receptors. But when I eat a potato chip and I get a big spike of dopamine, 
that's not a place that my brain can stay, right? I'm not evolutionarily adapted to be that happy. So the brain re-regulates, right? Down-regulates my own dopamine. So that now the next time I have potato chip, I need two potato chips, right? To get that feeling back. Right. And on and on it goes such that if I continue to eat potato chips, I essentially down-regulate my own dopamine and put myself into a dopamine deficit state. And that's really the key here. That's the come down. It's not something that people notice, but it's like right after I had the potato chip, I have this craving for another potato chip. That's my dopamine now dipping below baseline levels, driving me to have a second potato chip. And what happens when people become addicted is that they have so much, so many potato chips, just using that sort of as a stand-in. Right, for that's a- become our metaphor. Right. They have so many potato chips that even when they're not eating potato chips, they're still in this dopamine deficit state, which they experience as irritability, anxiety, insomnia, dysphoria, and craving for their drug. But also really importantly, they're kind of in an induced clinical depression where nothing else is enjoyable. The only thing that's fun anymore is eating potato chips. So a lot of thought is perseverates on getting more potato chips, eating more potato chips, hiding the fact that I spent a lot of money and ate a lot more potato chips than I said I would or than, than I meant to. Right. Um, and so that's really what's happening is that we're, as a result of ingesting these high dopamine substances, we're really changing our brains and we're inducing this dopamine deficit state. And that dopamine deficit state is what drives craving and drives the motivation to continue to use, even when it's making a lot of problems in my life, right? So that's the key to under, why do people relapse when their drug use causes so many problems? It's because they're in a dopamine deficit state. They're this sort of chronically dysphoric and then looking to feel not high, but now just to feel normal. Right, and we'll we'll talk in a bit. I'm not gonna get into you know, uh, recovery and how to solve it, but we'll, you know, because th- theoretically there must be, that's, there's a, that's a whole other discussion in terms of recovery, how to, how to abate that dof- dopamine deficit. But let's stay on this for a second. So what are some of the things, so, you know, there's obviously sex, all sorts of food. So there's potato chips, there's ice cream, there's chocolate, there's pasta, there's, you know, and, and people say, oh, I can't live without dessert after dinner. I mean, I don't know if that's, you know, real or that's just so behaviorally changed. Um, what caffeine, sugar, I know there've been studies where sugar is more addictive than cocaine when they put you know, rats in Skinner boxes, um, gambling, criminal behavior, like all those things. So are there other, those are, those are I'll call pretty well known and then social media, anything else, or can anybody be addicted to anything, talking on the phone, playing Yahtzee, like it's just whatever gets them their, their ding? You know, all addictive substances ultimately work on the same mm-hmm. dopamine reward pathway. It's a part of our brain that's in the lower brain stem. It's phylogenetically conserved over millions of years of evolution. Um, and ultimately, things that are rewarding or reinforcing, um, you know, hit, hit, hit that pathway, are reinforcing in that pathway. And then you have connections from that lower brainstem pathway, the reward pathway, to our prefrontal cortex. And that's our big gray matter up here, which is, you know, what makes us so adaptable to things like COVID, but also makes us so neurotic, frankly. Um, 
And that those those connections then induce habits that are triggered by all kinds of things in our environment, including what time of day it is. So people who must have a dessert after dinner, when it comes to addictive substances, our brains are like little alarm clocks. We're used to seeing our drug when we're used to seeing our drug. It may be that I don't think about that piece of chocolate cake all day long, but come you know 8 p.m. when I'm used to having that piece of chocolate cake, I, I can't imagine not getting it. And that's because we're kind of primed and our brains remember. And remember this, the, 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 our brain, this, this is a good thing in a land of scarcity, right? If you're, if you're, if you have very limited resources, very little access to food, clothing, and shelter, you have to have a brain that will incredibly strongly motivate you to, tra you know, traverse tens of thousands of miles to get food, clothing, and shelter, to find a mate, all of that stuff. The problem is that we now live in this land of plenty where it's just, it's, you know, it's a finger tap away. And that's what makes, you know, this, this era really unprecedented, I think, and incredibly challenging. So what happens? So just because you try something once, you don't suddenly become an addict. And different people, something, you know, lights my fire differently than somebody else, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, it's pornography. For you, it's gambling. I don't know, whatever. So get off my potato chips. People heard me talk about potato chips last week. They're <laughs> really going to think I have an issue. It's my one vice, people, honestly. <laughs> one vice. Uh, so, but something has them do it the first time and then something has it become compulsive. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm using the word compulsive. I'm not used, sure that's the right word, right? Um, talk about that. Like, what is it that had somebody tempted the first time? And again, I don't know if it's different when I'm thinking about my first choice of a hot fudge sundae, mm -hmm. there's nothing nasty in that. My first choice of heroin, I know I'm playing with fire. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, that, but we're talking to people so that they understand that we're using these substances, all sorts of things, these addictions are self-medicating, they're soothing, they're reinforcing, they're making us feel better. Um, so I'm trying to get to that first motivation and then the, the attachment to it. Well, you know, the first motivation um, can be many things. I mean, if you're a teenager, it can just be fitting in with your peers. Really, um, the first motivation can be because a doctor prescribed it to you, and that you know you listened to your doctor, and so so you you know you you, you took what was prescribed to you. I think what you're getting at is why is it that some people can use in moderation or use and say, oh boy, I think that's dangerous for me. I'm going to stop. Whereas other people progress to addiction, and that's of course a question that's been with us for centuries. It's a great question. And it really comes down to uh, what is our vulnerability to developing the disease of addiction? Because the truth is that most people who try an addictive substance or behavior will not go on to become addicted to that substance or behavior. And the risk factors can broadly be categorized into nature, nurture, and neighborhood. So in terms of nature, there is an inborn or heritable risk for addiction. In fact, about 50 to 70% of the risk of becoming addicted is based on your genes, what you were born with. And this is based on family studies, studies showing that individuals who have a parent, a biological parent or a grandparent with alcohol use disorder are at four times increased risk 
of alcohol use disorder, even when raised outside of the alcoholic home. So, so, is this, so you're talking about an increased risk of biochemical addiction, or does that include that if my father was a pornography addict, that I have a higher risk of being a pornography addict? Like, is it the addictive behavior? And again, yeah. I'm using the word self-medicating. I'm not sure if that's a fair statement to use. Yeah, no, I wouldn't use the word self-medicating. We can talk about that if you okay. want. Um, but it's, your, your question, though, is a great one. Is it like, is it specific for that substance? Or is it that if you have an addictive personality, you're prone to get addicted to anything? Right. We don't really know the answer to that. But it's probably the latter. People who have this vulnerability to addiction probably could get addicted to a lot of different things. Most people have a kind of drug of choice, but increasingly in younger cohorts, we're seeing a whole lot of polypharmacy. People who are not just using one drug, they're using a whole bunch of drugs and they're using them at the same time. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the nature now of, 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 of patients presenting with addictive disorders. So um, plus we know once you become addicted and this is animal studies show this and human anecdote shows this again and again, once you become addicted, even when you stop that substance, you're at increased risk to become addicted to another substance or a behavior. So we don't know whether, you know, that sort of polymath propensity for addiction is inborn or whether it comes as a result of having been addicted to something, but probably it's some combination. And we do know for sure that there is an innate heritable risk for addiction, which is probably tied to innate temperamental traits like impulsivity, ability to delay gratification, emotion dysregulation. So for example, people who have co-occurring psychiatric disorders are at increased risk for trying substances and getting addicted to substances and vice versa. Okay. So people who, who use substances are at increased risk for psychiatric disorders. So that's nature. Now let's look at nurture. We know that people who experience childhood trauma are at greater risk for developing addiction in adulthood. We know that um, children who have parents who implicitly or explicitly condone and support um, substance use, those kids are at greater risk for addiction. What's protective? Believe it or not, this is where helicopter parents finally get like, you know, a, a point. It turns out if you're a parent who kind of knows where your kid is, who they're with, what they're doing, what they're carrying in their backpack and what's under their bed in their room, those kids are less likely to become addicted. So, um, no, but within reason, there's helicopter parents that are then like <laughs> suffocating helicopter parents. Right? Yeah, no, you wouldn't, you know, being intrusive is not good. Um, and of course, it depends on the age of the child, et cetera. But, um, but you know, kind of monitoring and, you know, these, a, a healthy attachment, obviously. Mm -hmm. And then finally, and this is really important for the modern age, the, uh, another big and underappreciated risk factor is neighborhood. And by that, I mean broadly, if you live in a neighborhood where drugs are sold on the street corner, you are more likely to get addicted because it's easier to get access to those drugs and everybody around you is doing those drugs. In the last 30 years, doctors have been free with their prescription pad, prescribing opioids for minor and chronic pain conditions. Now we have a whole generation, several generations of individuals addicted to opioids. That's not coincidental. Those things are related, right? When we have an internet that allows a magic portal to not just drugs and alcohol, but sex, gambling, you name it, we have, I'm seeing in the last 10 years, an explosion of pornography addicts, an explosion of people with gambling addiction. 
And I really, you know, I attribute it to the smartphone, the sort of 20, 24 seven vehicle for uh, access to those drugs. And then also a lot of these behaviors, like you said, with if you're in an inner city where drugs are around you, it also does it become normalized behavior so that, and when you watch television, you watch, you know, there's, it just shocks me, you know, what, what Hollywood thinks is okay. You know, they get on the moral high ground about respecting women. And yet when you look at what's being produced, it's sex, drugs, and rock and roll all over the place. So that a lot of these behaviors have become normalized. And even as you hear about people that have issues, the more people, on the one hand, it's nice that they're talking about some of these issues, but the more that it's talked about, does that normalize it so that if somebody wants to step into it, that they don't, there's no fear of social pressure that it's, that it's inappropriate? Culture plays a huge role in how we use drugs and what drugs we use. And we know for a fact that when people believe a drug to be safer, more people will use that drug and more people will likely get addicted. The probably perfect Northern California example of that is cannabis, right? So we were the first state to have medical marijuana. And we have survey data showing that as young people began to consider um, cannabis to be medicine, not just young people, you know, middle-aged and older people too, rates of cannabis use went way up. People started using more, they started using daily, and they considered it their medicine. And there are so many examples of this where we've normalized use, where we've um, decided that the substance is safe. And, and with that sense of safety and security and normalization, use definitely goes up. Right. Um, let me try the, the flip side of it. There's also the normalization of the use of the word addicted. Mm -hmm. I'm addicted to Reese's peanut butter cups. Mm -hmm. And I have a question and someone out there asked, has a question about, she says she's, she has an issue. She's addicted to carbs. And is this common? Um, and many people are addicted to carbs bio, biochemically, but um, so A, can, can we answer Debbie? But also is there, how do the, is it real addiction or are people just using that word casually and is that a dangerous place to go? I think people do use the word casually. It's very colloquial now to talk about being addicted to this or being, I'm addicted to my show, you know, I'm addicted right. to potato, whatever it is, you know. Right. But I, I don't find, I, that doesn't trouble me really. In fact, I, I'm, I'm glad that people have increased awareness of our, all of our propensity to be addicted. So your caller who's addicted to carbs, I mean, you know, does she meet diagnostic and statistical manual criteria for, for being addicted to carbohydrates? You know, I, would, I don't know. I would have to examine her. I would have to find out how detrimental it is to her, her body, her self-esteem, her relationships, her work. Um, you know, is she compensating by binging and vomiting? And they're all, it's, it's all very complicated, but, but, um, but this concept that we all engage in behaviors that we, we overconsume, you know, that we all have things that we find so reinforcing that we have trouble stopping them, whether it's, you know, texting or whether it's reading or whether it's work, you know, I do think it's good for us to begin to conceptualize all of these, all of us as vulnerable to some extent to engaging in compulsive self and other destructive overconsumption. And I don't think it really cheapens it, not for me anyway. No, but we all, we all do it. And it's, 
theoretically, at least it starts out serving some purpose. But let me let me answer, Debbie. We probably have information, Rebecca, may, my, my editor that works with me, we have information about sugar addiction, that there really is carbohydrate addiction. There's the, the psychological, but there's the biochemical aspect of well for all sorts of reasons, not, not just um, what we're talking about, but also because of blood sugar peaks and valleys um, that it's kind of like the dopamine, right? Where you have to right. re refill your sugar fuels. As we said, sugar is extremely addictive. So I'm not sure what kind of carbs you're, you're addicted to, but it's definitely something to talk to um, a physician or a naturopathic physician that can help you with the dietary aspects of it to start. Um, brief aside question, and then I wanna talk about how people can tell if somebody's got a problem. How old are people when they become vulnerable to addiction or when they start dabbling in it? One of the most interesting epidemiologic trends that we're seeing in the field of addiction medicine in the last 20 years is that the natural, the natural story of when people first present with addiction was that they would come in in their teens, right? Teens, early adulthood. If a person was gonna have a problem with addiction, we would see them at that phase in their life. And indeed, if you look at graphs showing how the, you know, the age by the x-axis and how, how many people are addicted. It, there's a bell curve that swells right over around age 15 to age 25. But interestingly, in about the past 20 to 30 years, we've been seeing more and more older adults presenting for the first time with addiction. And these are often individuals who have been able to use their drug of choice in moderation for decades mm -hmm. and then find in late middle age or even older age that all of a sudden they're not able to control their consumption anymore. Mm -hmm. What used to be one glass of wine every evening is now a half bottle, is now a full bottle. And it's a very, very interesting phenomenon that's, you know, that, that I mean, there's lots of speculation on why that would be people are retiring and are maybe more bored and have less to do. Um, maybe it's something about the aging brain that whatever that capacity to control consumption that that person had through most of their adult life, they somehow lose as their brain uh, slowly ages. But it's a really, really important um, phenomenon and because we're seeing more and more individuals at this sort of suns in their sunset years, right. so to speak, who, who are presenting with, I mean, full-blown addiction problems, not, not minor problems, really big problems. Interesting. Interesting. Any male, female vulnerability? Barrier? Well, that's another fascinating thing. So historically, the ratio of men to women with addiction has been like five to one. I mean, way more men with addiction. Mm -hmm. Since the millennials came along, that's all turned on its head. It's now pretty much one-to-one -one in the starting with the millennial generation. Many, many more women, pretty much as many women as men now struggling with substance use disorders. So that's been another thing, what's often called the telescoping of a female addiction or women's problems with addiction. And are they the same substances that they're getting addicted to or just are there different categories of, you know, that men's, men's substances of choice are, the, you know, about the man ones and, you know, girl, girls are eating chocolate and men are drinking beer. I don't know, whatever. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. Um, you know, the most common substances that people get addicted to are the legal ones, which are alcohol, nicotine, and essentially cannabis at this point, um, followed by prescription drugs. And that's true across the board, men yep. and women. 
When it comes to um, process addictions, what we call process addictions or behavioral addictions like pornography, gambling, many more men, uh, gaming disorders, so internet video game, many, many more men, um, young men, old men than women. So that's that's interesting. But you know, there aren't there are women who who have very severe gambling addiction, very severe sex addiction, love and sex addiction. So Every, everything can get it. Um, all right, let's talk for a second um, about if you have someone in your life that you think might be addicted. I'm assuming that most people who have an addiction problem, I'm now making a presumption that they're not they're not necessarily listening to this and they're not necessarily jumping on the phone unless they really know that it's getting interrupting their life, disrupting their life. So I'm going to go with a different angle that says, if I have someone in my life that I think might have a problem, how do I know that they have a problem? And that's part one. And then part two is how do I address it with them? The first thing to acknowledge is that many people with addiction lead what's called the double life. So they can get very, very good at hiding their addiction. So it's perfectly possible to have a child living in your home with a severe addiction and for you to have absolutely no idea that it's happening. Some of the signs to look for are changes in basic functions like sleep and appetite. So if you have a loved one who's like, seems really tired and sleepy or isn't eating properly, or if you have a child who is doing well in school and they suddenly drop off, or you have um, someone in your family who is doing well at work and now is suddenly getting reprimanded. Those are some of the things to look for. But I do want to acknowledge that it can be really, really hard to know because people with addiction, part of the addiction is, is hiding and covering up um, and leading what is often referred to as this double life where on some level, that's what, that's what you know, there's this whole concept of denial in addiction mm-hmm. where people are, People are in denial about it being a problem, but one of my patients defined denial as don't even know I am lying, which I thought was right. great because which, the, yeah, go ahead. go ahead. I was just going to say that, that the denial can be so powerful that, that, that the addicted person actually convinces themselves that they're not spending, you know, two hours a day in a, a disreputable massage parlor or, or whatever it is. Well, that's why I wasn't trying to be rude or dismissive or disrespectful when I asked that question of that, I'm assuming that people that are watching this, that if they have a problem, they're not necessarily, they may or may not be acknowledging because of that. Like there was, because that is, I guess, part of it. Is there though, for that group, is there a self-test that if they've got an inkling and I, you know, I've got family and friends that have had addiction problems and I know that they have, they've raised their hands or, you know, family has, has helped them out of it. Um, is there a self-test that you can say, oh, wow, maybe I really do have a problem? Does it have to do with this lack of control? I think the problem with addiction and a self-test is that people, really all of us, if we sort of rely on our own internal dialogue mm-hmm. to try to figure something like that out, our big brains are so good at rationalizing and explaining irrational behavior that we probably won't get there, especially with more severe addictions which is why I really strongly recommend that a person who thinks they might be struggling with addiction, reach out to another human being for help. Mm -hmm. That can be a professional like me, an addiction medicine psychiatrist. You know, you can go talk to somebody and say, hey, I think I might have a problem. What do you think? Mm -hmm. And that, that person can, you know, they will do a thorough assessment and let you know, and also let you know what some options are to help you. Or go to, um, you know, an Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous peer recovery 
listen to other people's stories. Say, hey, does that sound like something I've been through? Does that resonate with me? The amazing thing about COVID is that a lot of these um, AA groups, these 12 groups are now online yep. all over the world. You can go to an AA group in London, in Paris, you know, you can go uh, and, you know, you can go on anonymously. So I think, or if there's a friend or a family member who you really trust and you feel like you can share, what I find is so essential for kind of that awakening into awareness of our addiction is actually saying the words out loud to somebody else. I did this. Do you think I have a problem? Or just, I did this. They may not even have to then say, do you think I have a problem? Just saying, I am doing this behavior may be enough to realize the behavior is real and I'm really doing it. And it really is a problem. I may not even then need someone else to say that's a problem, but it's the articulating it to another human being that I think really is a turning point for, for many people. Because it's not a secret anymore. That's right. Yeah. So is there a way if there's somebody in your life that you think might have a problem to approach them? Yeah, you know, as with all of these things, it's so scary to think about going and saying directly to the person that we're worried about what our worries and fears are. But I always suggest saying to a person, you know, I want to talk with you about something that's really um, important to me. I'd like to set aside a time. So to not do it sort of casually or in passing or when I'm um, tired and distressed, or when that person's tired and distressed, really set aside kind of a sacred time and then sit down and prepare what you're going to say and mostly talk in terms of what I have observed. So don't say, I think you have this problem and that you have, like, I have observed this and, and this is the way it makes me feel because nobody can contradict, you know, our own experience, our own observations, our own internal emotions. I feel really scared when I see you drink not just one glass of wine with me, but the whole rest of the bottle and then some after I go to bed. Or I feel really scared when I see you up till three in the morning playing video games and then not able to get up and go to school and, and be ready for your day. That makes me really frightened. I, I'm so kind of keeping it in the like, you know, this is my experience. That that way you're much less likely to get this kind of triggered defensive response or, you know, I don't have a problem. It's just, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, okay. And then just wait, like give space. Don't keep talking, say your piece and then give space for the other person to just, you know, react. And they might not even say anything right then, but I tell you, they'll be thinking about it. Right. They'll be thinking okay. about it. And it may affect their choices down the road. I always tell my medical students, you know, what you said with this patient today, you may think it didn't make any difference, but I've had patients come back two years later and say, you know, doctor, what you said to me then, I took it with me and I left treatment, but I really thought about that. And that's what got me into recovery or that helped me get into recovery. And if they, if I, so I ask, and then they may or may not say, oh yes, or they may say, no, I'm fine. Do I, what, do I silence myself then? Like, so I've done what I can because I can't control you. I can, can only control me, right? Mm -hmm. So do they just, is that it? You get one and done? Or do I watch it and at some point, like, can you go back? Or do you have to, again, one and done unless something significantly changes, it's impacting your life, et cetera? 
Yeah, I mean, I I think it really depends on how much this person's addiction is affecting you and your life or other people in the household that you're concerned about. Mm -hmm. And and if you are having those kinds of impacts and concerns, you should absolutely express it. And it's even okay, you know, over a period of time to say, I don't think I can go on living this way. You know, I when you're going to do what what you need to, but I I don't think I and the children or whoever it is, I don't think we can go on living this way. We, we love you. We we really want you to get help. Um, And and of course, you know, people should be aware of organizations like Al-Anon and Codependency Anonymous. These are 12-step organizations that are born out of Alcoholics Anonymous that are specifically to help family members who are struggling with a loved one with addiction. And they're really, um, can be really helpful organizations. They get to the heart of this problem called codependency, where in our efforts to help our loved one with addiction, we may actually be doing things that enable that addiction. And so we have to really, it, it's a very complicated dynamic, right? It's, it's not easy to tease apart. And so we all need to reach out and get help. And so Al-Anon is an organization that can help people. And I, I would encourage your, your listeners, your viewers to check it out. If they're struggling with somebody, if they love somebody and live with somebody who's got a very severe addiction, they've tried this and that and don't know how to help, Al-Anon is a really good organization. Um, I have a question from somebody. If somebody thinks they might have an addiction, do they probably have one? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. So I've had patients come in and say, you know, um, I think I might, you know, be an alcoholic. And, and I go through my whole my whole thing and I'm like, well, you know, I think you're what we call a risky drinker, but you haven't quite crossed the threshold into meeting criteria for alcohol use disorder. But you know what? I'm really glad you came in today right? because you were going to continue on down this road. You probably would cross that threshold. And it's so much better that you came in early because it's easier to tackle when, you know, it's earlier uh, in the process. So, and, and based on what you're saying, then I think if you have a worry, speak up. Yeah. If you have a worry, or- Right. Go talk to somebody, right. you know, or go see, if you don't want to tell, talk to anybody in your family, heck, go see, go see a specialist, you know, schedule a consultation. I have people do that all the time and say, you know, they're like, like, do you think I have a problem? And I say, well, I mean, I think this is problematic and that's not so worrisome, but then there's this. And, you know, we talk it through and you come up with strategies. I also think you don't have to meet criteria for an, a substance use disorder to benefit from seeing uh, somebody with expertise in this area, mm-hmm. because, like I said, you know, we're all struggling with some degree of compulsive consumption of something. And, you know, if all the little tricks you've tried aren't working, go see somebody to help you rein in, uh, rein in that, that kind of consumptive problem. Great. I have one last question. You said, I think that there's some, you know, it's, it's now the land of apps. So on the one hand, we're all addicted to phones and apps and scrolls and everything else. On the other hand, I think you said there are actually some apps that are out there that are helpful for people with addiction issues. Definitely. There are lots of exciting apps coming down the pipeline, um, apps to help people count their sober days, apps to help people um, manage, uh, for example, um, to keep a track of how much they're drinking in a given day or a given week. There are even devices where people can breathalyze themselves into their phone so they can know whether they've surpassed the legal limit to drive. And if they have, then to call an Uber or call a friend. Um, so there are all kinds of, ex- and there are all kinds of like habit apps and different things to help people kind of manage their habits. So which then speaks to this person, if you think you might have a problem, this, these also could be helpful to track. 
any in particular that you're allowed to recommend or that you recommend to your patients? No, I don't tend to recommend any particular apps. They usually come into me and say, hey, I'm doing this thing. And I say, oh, show me that. What's that helping you with? There's so many, so many things. There are also a lot of websites and chat rooms and online resources for, you know, moderating substance use, harm reduction, um, and also, you know, online um, sort of for people who have bona fide addiction. Yes. All right. Anna Lemke, you're fabulous. Thank you so much. Don't forget her book, Dopamine Nation, is coming out in the summer. It's a great book. Go see Social Dilemma and check out Medicating Normal as well. Thank you so very much. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure. We're living in an unprecedented time when trust in our media and news sources are at an all-time low. It seems that everyone has an agenda, if not a political one, then a business one, as media companies are beholden to advertisers or shareholders. Well, not at bottom line. We're a family-owned business and have been free from the influence of advertising since our start nearly 50 years ago, focused solely on helping people live happier, more fulfilled lives. Our flagship publication, Bottom Line Personal, provides advice that can be put into action each day, helping people do better and feel better. Thousands of top, highly respected, truth-seeking experts have appeared in Bottom Line Personal on topics in all areas of life, including healthcare, financial planning, home improvement tips, great gift ideas, how to save money on travel, insurance snafus, smart tax strategies, improving your relationships, and so much more. Bottom Line Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for nearly 50 years with our actionable and double fact-checked advice. Subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of our experts' greatest tips of all time. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast. That's bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast.